welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. It is Thursday, October 14th. The NLDS Game 5 is starting in about six and a half hours from now, and just about 10 seconds ago, I realized Corey Knable is starting, not Julio Urias. I feel like we're going to need to talk about that. We are going to get into where we are with the playoffs, talk about the teams that just got eliminated, talk about the teams that are still out there, and also guest. We're going to be joined by Kansas City Royals outfielder Michael A. Taylor to talk about his experiences on the 2019 World Series winning Nationals and what he has seen against the players and teams still alive. Matt, I wanted to talk about some of the events of the last couple of days, but Corey Kniebel starting tonight? Like, I, I, There's, wow, I, you know, it was supposed to be 20-game winner Julio Urias, who presumably will be coming in afterwards, and I am guessing people are going to be torn between A, Okay, well, the Giants have a very fluid lineup. Maybe this is a way to screw up those late-inning platoon situations. And B, man, do people hate openers, especially in like a winner-take-all game. If if this goes poorly, they will never wear it down, live it down. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 uh it's an interesting decision. I think it comes down to two things, which is basically it's going to force the Giants probably to make substitutions and pinch hit earlier than they would want to. So that maybe they don't have their, like, as you kind of alluded to, their ideal platoon matchup pinch hitting situations late in the game. And from the Dodgers' perspective, Julio Urias, this is not like Julio Urias has a lot of experience coming out of the bullpen. So unlike some pitchers who might be like some, you know, some quote unquote star pitchers might be like, this, one, this is messing with my routine. I don't want to like come in in the second inning or the third inning. Like this is going to screw with me. Urias has, has pitched in the bullpen a lot in his career. He has over 30 relief appearances in the regular season in his career. He closed out game seven of last year's World Series coming out of the pen. So I think that like the Dodgers have some comfort knowing that this pitcher is well equipped to come in um, after an inning or two and not miss a beat. He also doesn't have a lot of uh, platoon splits here. you know. So it's not like you're protecting him in the way that you might a different kind of pitcher. And it just feels a little galaxy brainy for me. Like maybe just start the best pitcher you have. I mean, I appreciate it, but I I wonder how we're going to feel about this in, oh, I don't know, eight hours or so. We're going to have some <laughs> thoughts. But since we don't know what's going to happen, uh, let's talk about the, the things we have already seen happen. For example, we have a couple of teams that have gone home. We have three teams who showed up for the division series and they are gone now. And I think Rays, Brewers, White Sox, how do you want to rank them in terms of which team feels the worst right now? Who's who is like just angsty about this right now? I think the White Sox because they just kind of got worked. Yeah. Whereas like with like the Rays played pretty well. There's just like I mean they got a couple of bad breaks and the Red Sox are really good and it's just like I don't know like obviously it's, you know they won hundred games and they're out in the DS that's frustrating but I mean the White Sox just got like worked and it really kind of some of the weaknesses of their team feel like they were kind of exposed and it was just like, didn't feel like a great effort from them. The Brewers had to deal with the Devin Williams injury, which kind of screwed them up a little bit. So I feel like it's the, the White Sox to me feel the most angsty. What about you? I think the Rays, because they won a hundred games. You know? <laughs> like they, they won a hundred games. They looked like this was the best team in race. So let's start with the Rays. I think the takeaway from this is that a lot of people are jumping on the opportunity to say, well, you didn't have real starting pitchers. You know, you started guys who were either rookies or just ever so slightly not rookies. I think Drew Rasmussen doesn't qualify as a rookie anymore. And, you know, this will this will prove it to you. Go get some pitchers, right? And I think two things can be true. I think when we said this before, 
they should have kept Charlie Morton. Like, it's great to give them credit for operating on a low payroll, but also wouldn't this team be better if they just had Charlie Morton? But the other thing is, they lost Tyler Glasnow. They had a Cy Young contender. How many teams survived the loss of an ace like that in season? Like, when did the Mets season basically end when Jacob deGrom got hurt? You know, the, the Yankees, they didn't lose Garrett Cole, but he didn't look very good down the stretch, and he wasn't good in the wild card game. Imagine where the Braves would be if Max Fried was out. You know, so you you can say, oh, they didn't have real starters. Well, they, they had one, and he got hurt. And then their other real starter was Ryan Yarbrough, who I like. He was so ineffective against the Red Sox this year. I swear these numbers I'm about to quote are true. In five games, 20 innings, 28 runs. <laughs> you could not start him against the Boston Red Sox in the playoffs. I mean, that it, that's a fireable offense. So I get it. Would you like to do three young guys like that? No, but I disagree with people who are like, that was literally their choice. That was where they were hoping they would be right now. I think you hit the nail on the head. They really could have used like a, if not literal Charlie Morton, a Charlie Morton like pitcher or two. And I think that that's some, you know, they still, you would think that probably have the wherewithal to go and get a pitcher of that ilk, you know, on the free agent market and who I think would just help. So even just, I mean, in the playoffs these days, it's like, if you can get four quality innings, it's like, okay, we got four good, like can, who can we count on for? four good innings, right? And like that's and like, you know, Charlie Morton the other day for the Braves pitching on short rest, I think gave them four good innings, right? So it's like that's that's kind of what you need. And they they didn't really have anyone who you felt could give them that. And I do think that that that's tough in a playoff series when you're playing against what you know are the best lineups in the league. And like the Red Sox have their shortcomings, but they have a really good lineup and that showed against the Rays. You know, for all the heat Kevin Cash took for lifting Blake Snell in game six last year. I think the worst decision was throwing fastballs to Kike Hernandez in the last game. <laughs> what did we think was going to happen there? I also, I, I, I push back a little bit too on people who have uh, voiced the opinion that, you know, the Rays losing proves that the quote unquote nerd way of baseball doesn't work as though the Dodgers and the Giants and the Astros are Luddites operating from the 1972 playbook. You know, I'm not buying it. The Red Sox are run by the former GM right. of the Rays. Exactly. As are the Dodgers and the and, and the Astros. I know. I don't know if Click was actually their GM or if he was just like an AGM, but they were all former. Yeah. It's the, the, Rays, the Rays' tentacles are everywhere in postseason baseball. Okay. So we, we mentioned the White Sox as well. Uh, I think you're right. This series never felt close. I mean, this credit to the Astros, who we've been kind of talking up for a while, like, hey, the Astros are underrated, although they might be without their best starter for a while, which we'll get to. Um, the Astros never looked like they had a chance. And I'm not I'm not sure which approach. The White, the White Sox. The White, White Sox, excuse me. I'm not sure which approach I want to take on this. I don't think Tony Larissa did a good job choosing his starters and choosing when to take them out. But also none of them pitched well. Like Lance Lynn had a phenomenal year. And pumping fastballs against this Astros rotation was never going to work. Would I have started him in game one? Probably not. Would it matter then if he got pounded in game two? Probably not. You know, like Giolito was okay, not great. Rodon, you know, pitched better than I thought he would for like three innings, but it was pretty clear he was not going to get to go that deep. I don't like the way Larissa used uh, Michael Kopech. Uh, I don't like how little high leverage, how few high leverage plate appearances Liam Hendricks got into. But also, it's just that the Astros lineup is better than the White Sox pitching. I feel like it comes down to that. I think, I mean, I think that's right. Like, you know, if Lance Lynn was going to get rocked, it probably wouldn't have mattered if it was game one or two. I didn't really understand. As you said, Rodon ended up pitching better than maybe many expected, myself included. I didn't understand the decision to pinch him. Once you get that, that 
that day off, the, the rain day, rain, uh, the rain out, it feels like a gift or something you're like, oh, I can actually now bring my, my game one starter back on full rest. So to me, it's like, if you chose this guy to pitch game one a week ago, when you could have picked any of your pitchers, and now you get the opportunity to throw him again on full rest, and you don't, that just didn't make any really any sense to me. It felt like there was some sentimentality at play with Rodon, a guy they drafted, getting a chance to pitch in this game. Which I, I mean, it's like this is where it's really hard to manage a team, right? Like I, uh, I, I understand why it's easy for me as an outsider to be like, oh, just like you know, just pitch Lynn again, not taking into account this idea of. Oh well, this is a guy we took with the number three overall pick, Carlos Rodon. He's like worked his way from being what looked like a bust into being a very good major league pitcher. This could be his last start with our franchise as a impending free agent. Like, it's hard to kind of take that sentimentality away from it. Um, so I can understand why I did it, but it seemed it seemed like a strange decision to me given the information that we had. The other piece, the other thing I want to mention is the whole silly saga with how do you, is it like is it tapera right tapera calling out the astros for maybe yeah. illegally stealing signs again <laughs> like first off like i know the astros have not earned the benefit of the doubt but like it's been four years the almost the entire coaching staff in front office has turned over and the one constant over the last like six years is that the astros have raked at home and on the road even in 2017 the year where like they were busted for illegal sign stealing their road numbers i think were just as good if not better than their home number home home numbers. This year, they were second in the league in runs scored on the road. The White Sox had much more extreme home road splits <laughs> right. than the Astros did. It's like, dude, if you're going to throw these things, you can't just like throw out these casual accusations without anything to back it up. As I said, I know the Astros have not earned the benefit of the doubt. And I actually like, it's it sort of almost feels like they've become almost like the Barry Bonds of teams where like, yes, they've done something that's solid their legacy, but we just can't deny that this is a great team with a bunch of really talented hitters. I'm going to be a little harsher on the Astros than you, where you say they haven't earned the benefit of the doubt. I will say they have earned all the aggravation they get. Like I don't like two things can be true at the same time, right? Any player who wants to give the Astros a hard time is justified in doing so. And Ryan Tapera had nothing to back this up. And you took the words out of my mouth. The White Sox had way bigger home road splits. Um, <laughs> You know what the worst Ryan Tapera thing, though, was and anything to do with him. He was really good this postseason, right? <laughs> 15 hitters, one hit. He is the guy who should have been facing Correa, right? When Correa got the double, I think it was. It was uh, off Rodon. It was, yeah. That's what I'm saying. They left Rodon in, and then he brings in Michael Kopech, who had thrown like a billion pitches one day before. You should have brought in Ryan Tapera there. Because I don't know if you remember the pitch sequences from Kopech to, to Correa in the first inning. Slider, slider, slider. And then in the last at bat, when it was clear like he was not uh, placing the slider anymore, fastball, fastball, fastball. And the quote that Carlos Correa gave the athletic is hilarious. Here it is. I wasn't going to let a fastball go past me. If he'd have thrown a slider, I probably would have fallen on the plate. But I was 100% committed to the fastball and getting on top of it. And he threw it and I capitalized. You sure did. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of that for the White Sox. After after. All the angst of last year, firing your manager after one postseason win because you didn't like the way he managed his bullpen in the playoffs. Repeat that last sentence again. But I don't think they're going to make a managerial change. It's a it's a disappointing end to what was a really fun team. Although, let's pat ourselves on the back. I think we voiced concern about them like three weeks ago, didn't we? We should go back and listen to that one. All right, what about the Brewers? Um, the Brewers, I think, were like a sneaky, I don't want to say a, 
a chance to win the pennant because Giants and Dodgers look so good. But I kind of thought that with that pitching staff, they could make some noise. And the pitching was actually pretty good. You know, it's not like the Braves did a ton on offense. Um, but man, that Brewers offense did nothing. And there's some concerns going forward there, I think. Yeah, it's. I mean, that was my concern about uh, this team. going. I think that this is why I picked the Braves in this series. Um, so I'll pat myself on the back for that. It's just like they didn't have anyone in your lineup that scared you. And if you look at the Brewers going forward, I mean, you have this – you don't really have any like young, exciting bats that you're like, oh, this 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 player is on the ascent. And, you know, Keston here was that a couple years ago, but he's – it really has gone downhill for him and you can't really rely on him as part of your core. And then you have this really expensive outfield of Christian Yelich, who I don't know what's going on with him. Like that's a, a serious concern. He's basically been a, an average player at best for two years now. Lorenzo Cain and Jackie Bradley Jr., who are all locked in for 2022. I mean, JBJ has an opt-out clause for 2022, but considering his uh, sub-500 OPS this year, I'm pretty sure he's going to stick around for the $9 million he's owed for next year. Um, so um, that's that's hard for a team like the Brewers. You know, that you're prob- they're probably not going to run like a super high payroll, so they're like locked into these three – these three, you know, high-priced outfielders, and they don't really have any obvious solutions. Avisol Garcia is going to be a free agent. He was one of their best hitters this year, so they have the pitching to compete against again next year in the NL Central. And we just had some breaking news in the NL Central, which we should also talk about. Wait, what? Uh, we did? What happened? Uh, what? Wait, 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 wait! What? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, this, well, breaking news live on air. Mike Schilt, apparently, according to Jeff Pass and VSPN, is out as the Cardinals manager, and Whoa. apparently the Cardinals. The Cardinals have a Zoom scheduled for uh, in a minute, so this is, seems this seems uh, very real, about to go down. So we don't really know the specifics of why this happened, but the NL Central man just got a lot more interesting this offseason, I guess. But you know, back to the Brewers. Um, I don't know how you, I don't know what you do with that, right? What do you do with this? You a team where it's hard to upgrade that offense the way they're currently constructed. I'm sorry. I'm so distracted by the Cardinals firing Mike Schill. Um, let's uh, here's some inside baseball, you know, like within baseball. For the last like five or six years or so, every once in a while, I would pitch Matt an article on how Jackie Bradley Jr. is finally going to find it, and it became kind of a running joke with Matt, one of our other editors, Dan Silverman. So I guess I have to wear it and point yeah, out that you didn't, you didn't just pitch it; we let you write it like three uh, times, more than once. Jackie Bradley Jr. Just had quite literally one of the worst seasons in the last century of baseball. Among anybody who had 400 plate appearances, his OPS plus of 34 is fifth worst. I have the list of the top seven here. I'm not going to name them all except to say this. Of the other six names on the top or bottom seven, uh, three of them played for the St. Louis Browns. So that should tell you a little bit about how rough that is. The other one, thing is one, of them, one of them is actually Mario Mendoza. Literally Mario Mendoza. Yeah, <laughs> not what you want. Um, the other thing too is like, you know, we, we talk about Yelich a lot. Um, Lorenzo Cain's deal has not gone that well. They signed him to a five-year deal, which I was hugely in favor of. I cannot believe we were four-fifths of the way through this deal already. In 18, he was really good. He made the all-star team. 2019, pretty poor. 81 OPS plus. 2020, he only played in five games and opted out. And this year, he missed half the season due to quad and hamstring injuries. And he was only okay. He's going to be 36 years old next year. So you're right. He's he's going to play, but I don't know what to make of him. I have no idea what to make of Christian Yelich. Uh, Willie Adamas and Luis Urias are intriguing infielders, certainly. Um, I can't remember. Did they sign Colton Wong to a one-year deal? No, a two-year deal. Okay, so they have him back next year. But you're right. They they have to do something in that outfield. 
and I don't know what it's going to be. All right, we will take a quick break, and we will be back with Michael A. Taylor of the Kansas City Royals. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are extremely grateful to be joined by Kansas City Royals outfielder Michael A. Taylor. Michael is a member of the 2019 World Series winning Washington Nationals. He's had more than a few big postseason moments in his career, and he's faced some of the guys we're going to be seeing in the ALCS, NLCS, and the World Series. Michael, first of all, thanks so much for being here. And I, I, Before you came on, we talked a little bit about the fact that you know we're recording this on Thursday. It's before the fifth game of the NLDS. We don't know if the Giants will win. We don't know if the Dodgers will win. But this is a situation you have been uh, in a couple of times. You've been in multiple fifth games of an NLDS. You actually played against the Dodgers twice. And in this kind of winner-take-all situation, like what what are you preparing for? Are you trying to be relaxed? Are you trying to go nuts with scouting reports? Like how are you approaching this kind of big game? Well, first, thank you guys for having me. Um, you know, in these situations, like a game five, it is a uh, winner go home. So um, everyone is ready to go. Everyone's on call. I remember we had uh, one game five that Max came in pretty late, you know, out of the bullpen, a situation that you don't normally see him throw in. But in these situations, like I said, uh, you know, everyone's on call and ready to go. Does the do you, does the preparation change? Does it feel like, oh, you know, we're we're having more meetings or extra scouting reports or thinking differently about how you're going to approach your at-bats? Or does that kind of, you know, not really track with the way you prepare for baseball games over the course of a long season? No, I wouldn't say it changed too much. Um, just about every playoff team that I've been on, we've come into the playoffs trying to keep things as normal as possible. You know, there's there's going to be the added media, the, uh, you know, the crowds get a little bigger. So there's enough going on to let you know that you're in the playoffs and things are a little different. So as much as you can keep things, you know, relaxed and as normal as possible, I think the better off you are. You know, you, you've had a lot of success in the postseason in your career. Uh, OPS over a thousand, four home runs and 38 at bats. And two of those home runs came in the 2017 NLDS uh, against the Cubs. And one of those stood out to me in the fourth game, you hit a grand slam in the eighth inning off of Wade Davis, who, uh, you know, actually was your teammate, I guess this past year, but, you know, was for the number of years, one of the best relievers in baseball uh, and one of the most difficult to home run off of. And you actually hit it to the opposite field, uh, a fastball on the outer half. One ball, one strike. Davis sets the kick of the pitch. Swing and a high fly ball. Right center field. Hap going back. Way back at the wall. He leaps and it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Goodbye. It's a grand slam home run for Michael Taylor. Into the basket in right center field. With the wind blowing in on a day when no one could hit it out. Michael Taylor is in a grand slam here at the top of the eighth inning. And it's now the Nationals five and the Cubs nothing. Unbelievable. Now that you've gotten to know him a little bit in person, I'm curious, I guess, A, uh, have you ever given him a hard time about that? (laughs) And B, what were you thinking going up there in a spot like that against a reliever that good? Uh, Well, Wade is one of the nicest guys in the world. So uh, I I didn't mess with him at all really about it. He brought it up a lot more than I did. I don't think, you know, it was something I came into it uh, this season. I wasn't going to say anything about it. wasn't going to bring it up. And that was one of the first things he said. Um, And he, 
he laughed about it and uh i don't know i i can't really you know it was just uh one of those situations where you're you're at the plate and you're trying to be aggressive you have a chance to you know score a run i definitely wasn't thinking um a grand slam right there just try to hit something up the middle and uh was able to get something in the air Another one of the, uh, before we move on to talking about uh, the the uh, the LCS teams from this year, there was one other postseason home run I wanted to ask you about, which was one you hit in 2019 on 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 route to a um, to the World Series title with the Nationals. It was against Adam Wainwright. It was in Game Two of the NLCS. The Nationals had won Game One, and this was in the third inning. And it was interesting to me because you jumped on the first pitch, and you're a hitter who, um, from what I can tell, swings the first pitch. First pitch a lot. I sell like forty percent of the time this year, which is in the like the top, you know, maybe top twenty five percent of the league in terms of first pitch swing percentage. So, in a situation like that, did you do you did you feel like you caught Wayne right off guard? I mean, he has to know you like to swing at the first pitch. So, like, you know, how does what goes through your mind in that situation when you're just you're trying to you know, you're trying to ambush him or what? Well, it's it's something I've done for just about all of my career. So I think at this point, guys know, and um, you know, I do see a high percentage of sliders and off-speed breaking balls uh, first pitch. So um, I don't think I caught him off guard. I think it's something that he, you know, was expecting. Maybe it wasn't the pitch that he wanted. But for me as a hitter, um, knowing that guys are are looking to get to the slider, looking to get to that off-speed against me, you know, I don't want to give away any uh, get-me-over fastballs or fastballs to set up that slider. So I'm always going up there looking ready to hit. And, uh, you know, um, you know, if I get that fastball, I, I don't want to give it away. You know, looking ahead to the teams that are still alive this year, uh, the Astros are managed by Dusty Baker and Dusty was your manager for two years in Washington. Uh, one of a few different managers that you had there. And when, you know, you had successful regular seasons there, and then obviously you went on to the postseason. did Dusty change at all? Like did the, you know, the words he said in the clubhouse, his approach, or is he just trying to keep it exactly the same for you guys as it was in May and June and July? No, he, he kept it pretty much exactly the same. Um, you know, I remember we did have a meeting before the playoffs, but um, his message was really just go out there and play the game. Don't, uh, don't change anything. Uh, you know, basically just do all the things that got us there. Now, Dusty has obviously had a lot of um, frustrating playoff sagas, I guess would be, you know, one way to put it. You know, he's been there. This is his 11th trip. He's never won the World Series. He's been there once. You know, what was your experience with with um, with Dusty as a manager? And like, do you have any, are there any like moments from when you played with him where you guys didn't get over the hump that you sort of like second guess or regret? Uh, not at all. I really enjoyed playing for Dusty, and I think most guys that get the opportunity to play for him uh, feel the same way. He's a manager that cares about all of his guys um, from top to bottom, and uh, he's just a guy that you want to go out there and play for and play well for. So, um, you know, definitely rooting for him. We have a good relationship, and uh, like I said, I enjoyed my time with him. You know, when the Astros and the Red Sox get this series going, they're going to be playing in, I guess, two of the more interesting home parks in terms of left field fences, right? Like the Green Monster in Boston and the Crawford Boxes in Houston. And as a right-handed hitter, you know, going up there, does it feel like those are right on top of you? Does it? Do you have to work hard not to change your approach to try to hit a fly ball to left field too much? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, like you said, both of those teams have similar parks, so they're used to 
you know, using that to their advantage. Um, but for me, as a visiting player, you know, you go into those parks, you have three, maybe four games. And, you know, me personally, I, di I didn't feel comfortable changing my approach, you know, just for those three or four games. You can see it, though, uh, when you're playing those teams, you know, I'm standing in the outfield and you see guys kind of pulling off or, you know, you can tell they're looking to hook the ball and uh, getting to talk to Andrew Benatendi a little bit about it. You know, he played quite a few games there and, um, you know, he did tell me that's something that they're very conscious of and uh, try to take advantage of. You know, one of the Red Sox pitchers we will see in this series is Nick Pavetta, and that's someone you've had a great deal of success against. I don't know how closely you look at your stats against individual pitchers, but you faced him 14 times, seven hits, two doubles, and one homer. Can you take anything away from 14 plate appearances, or is there something about the way he pitches that works really well with the way you swing? I'm going to be honest, if you didn't tell me that before, you know, <laughs> if you just asked me, hey, how do you feel against Nick Pavetta? I would have never guessed that I had those numbers. Is um, that a good thing, I guess, right? Like if if it's the opposite, like, you know, Nathan Nivaldi is someone you haven't had a great deal of success against. So, you know, maybe you go up there and it's like, well, I don't I don't really remember that. So I don't feel overwhelmed by it. I, I honestly don't know if it's good or bad, but, you know, I just remember facing Pavetta and he's always um, throwing fastballs in, try to pound me in pretty hard to set up the slider away. Um, and Evaldi is somewhat similar, but, you know, a little more velo, um, some like crossfire action. And uh, I don't know, I'm kind of surprised by the numbers by Pavetta, but... <laughs> Yeah, those those guys are both really good pitchers and and have good stuff, good live fastballs, and uh, you know secondary stuff. If I asked you if you knew your performance against Evaldi, what would you say? Because I have it in front of me. I don't feel like I've had too many at bats off of him, but I'm guessing not too good. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're you're right on that one. You're you're one for nine against him, but as you said, he's got really. He's got really nasty stuff. But that brings me to a question. Like on this podcast, we talk a lot about, you know, we get in the weeds about like matchups and how much we can read into, you know, specific hitter batter matchups. And do they tell us anything about, about, you know, can they, can they help predict the future? Right. So like going into a game, going into a series, are you, how much stock do you put into, oh, I've had success against this guy and I feel good about facing him again? Like, or do you even think about, like, for example, you could say, yeah, I know I'm four for six against him, but two of those were bloops. And like, it's actually kind of fluky. Like, it actually isn't. It, I know, like, the numbers are, are are good, but like, I don't think I've actually had such great swings against him. Yeah, I think everyone's trying to go in there feeling good. So if you have good numbers against someone, you're going to use that to, uh, you know, maybe give you a little extra confidence going in. And if you don't, you throw that out the window, you know, fully knowing that, you know, every day is a new day. And even if I am one for nine against someone, uh, he can make a mistake and leave a pitch over the plate. And, um, you know, I don't have to go three for four against him that day to make a difference in the game. It could be one bad pitch that, you know, knocks in a run or I get on base and uh, able to get across. You know, obviously every player on a roster wants to start in the game and certainly they don't all get to and some come off the bench and some of the biggest moments are off the bench. And, you know, for you in the World Series a couple of years ago, that was mostly your role. At what point in that game are you 
you know, thinking, okay, I, I need to get ready. I might be able to come in. It's, it's obviously a, such a high leverage at every point in the game. Like, what is it like coming off the bench in those situations? Well, um, in that situation for me, I was mainly just a defensive base running uh, type role for the World Series. So, um, you know, you just follow the game and try to think with the manager in those situations. And the game that I did get in, it was kind of a blowout. So I knew I had a chance. Uh, we were up quite a few runs. Um, you know, so you just you try to be ready for any situation and, and think along with the manager so you're not surprised. In that situation, it was in it was in Houston, and you homered off Chris Davinsky. Did you go up be like, ah, we're up 11-2. I'm going to try and hit a home run here? Definitely not. Um, <laughs> I was just looking to get a hit. Um, I don't even remember. I know I hit a fastball, but I don't remember the sequence, honestly. Um, speaking of the Astros, you know, one of the, the big storylines for them this, going into this series is the status of Lance McCullers Jr., who is kind of um, – uh, to become the ace of their staff, but you know it's unclear if he's going to pitch. He had a sore forearm the other day. He's a pitcher who sort of seems to represent kind of the the, the way modern pitching is gone, and that he's he's really evolved and you know throws his breaking stuff a lot more. What's been your experience against him, and is that something you know as a hitter you've had to adjust to in terms of seeing pitchers who now maybe I guess what used to be called pitching backwards, but doesn't really seem to be so backwards anymore. I haven't seen a big difference, um, you know, maybe mainly because that's how guys have always attacked me. A lot of breaking balls out of the zone, trying to get the slider uh, chase. Um, the biggest change that I've seen in the game recently is a lot more fastballs up. Guys are throwing the four seam, um, you know, trying to get above the bat, where in the past it was a lot more two seam run and trying to jam guys to open up away. Now guys are uh, looking at vert and spin and things like that so um you know lance is is a great pitcher and he can do both do you think the the pendulum is swinging backwards a little bit because i think what teams have realized is that you know that approach of the high spin four seamer high it's not really one size fits all you know so like uh corbin burns is a great example he had a really hard four seamer but it didn't move at all and he got killed and then he went more two seam cutter logan webb who has become a blossoming ace for San Francisco is kind of the same thing. You know, four seamer wasn't that good. And now he's using these, you know, a sinker slider, which is sort of harkens back to, you know, when I was a kid back in the eighties, uh, are you seeing more of that now? Or is it just kind of individual guys? Well, I mean, I'm not a pitching coach, so I don't know the recipe for, uh, you know, success as far as pitchers go. But um, for me, I think guys that are tough are the guys that, multiple pitches look the same coming out of their hand. And then it's not until, you know, just before halfway gets to the plate that it starts to move off of that line. So I guess a four seam fastball might not be fitting for everyone if, you know, the rest of their stuff doesn't really match up with it. Now, as, as we go through the playoffs, especially as we get to the World Series, one thing we, you hear a lot of the broadcasters talk, talk a lot about the different styles of, oh, NL, you know, in the National League, you know, more small ball or American League, things, are, this is different. You just switched from the National League to the American League. Do you feel like there's a difference in terms of the way teams play? And if it's not about the way they play, do you notice any distinction between um, the American League and the National League? Besides just the obvious there being a DH in one. Um, honestly, no, I didn't notice a huge difference. 
for me personally, you know, I've, I faced a lot of pitchers that I've never seen before. Um, but outside of that, the gameplay, um, I didn't notice a big difference. You know, you did spend your year uh, in Kansas City. What was it like watching Salvador Perez up close? I mean, reported, I've never met him, right? But reportedly, he's uh, an excellent teammate and obviously powerful. And all of a sudden, he comes out this year with 48 home runs. Uh, was How surprising was that to you to watch? Well, I can't say surprising because, I mean, I watched his BP even in spring training. And I don't know if you're familiar with our backfields, but he's hitting balls out of one field onto the next, which has a, probably about a 60-foot walkway in between. So, you know, you see that and you know the power is there. He can leave any ballpark, even Kaufman, which is one of the biggest um, center field, right field, left field. It doesn't matter. Uh, so he's got impressive power. And then also it's very impressive how he's able to post every day. Uh, he played every single game, uh, more than, you know, the majority of them behind the plate. And I think everyone knows the beating you take as a catcher and then to be able to produce at the plate and perform behind the plate defensively, you know, for 162, it's it's truly amazing. You know, you mentioned how large it is uh, in Kaufman, and that's definitely true. And I'm not sure if you're the type of player who gets interested in the advanced metrics or anything, but you're clearly a very good defensive outfielder were you aware like how well you rated this year because if you look at the two you know main outfield metrics you've got defensive run saved and outs above average you were top two in both which uh is a pretty good compliment and i was just curious if anyone had showed that you do this i've seen a little bit of that honestly i've tried to stay away from it during the year just because i didn't want it to get in the way of you know just going out there and playing and start thinking about metrics and numbers and things like that um and even still, like I've gotten home and I, <laughs> it wasn't high on my list to just, you know, open up the computer and look at my numbers. So I haven't really seen um, any of that. Before we let you go, uh, just two questions really for you. In in 2018 in Washington, uh, you got to play a couple of games in center field with Bryce Harper on one side of you and Juan Soto on the other side of you, probably two future Hall of Famers. How quickly did you realize how special Soto was going to be? I watched Soto uh, that same year in spring training, and I don't think he'd played past A ball. And this was just, you know, in BP in the backfield. And watching, I think he was 18 at the time, watching him go oppo repeatedly in BP. At that point, I knew, like, you know, he had something special. You just, you don't see that, that strength, and then also the back control at that age. And just the maturity to go out there and work the other way a lot of guys you get a chance to go to big league camp and hit you know they want to just show off their power and you see him yanking balls hooking balls to the full side um you know and he he wasn't like that speaking of that those those nationals teams i you know i assume you saw when juan soto was was out in la um cheering on trey turner and max scherzer in the playoffs, like when you see that as a member of that, that team, you know, what, 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 what comes to mind? What do you think of when you think of the 2019 nationals? I'd never seen anything like that before. So it was pretty cool to see. It felt like, it felt like something I'd like out of high school. Yeah, it was really great to see. And I think that that team in 19, everyone got really close. Um, there was a large group of guys that have been there for a while and 
you know, we had ups and downs and a couple disappointing pl playoff runs. And, you know, that year, I think everyone just came together and decided that, you know, we were going to just put it all together and give it everything we had. You know, last question before we let you go, Michael, as you look at the team's remaining in the playoffs. My assumption, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you don't care terribly much if it's the Giants who win or the Red Sox who win, but that maybe you're rooting for uh, players that you're close with, friends or, or ex-teammates. Uh, the guys left, who are you pulling for to do well? Well, it makes it tough because I have friends on just about every team. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just watch them individually and, and uh, you know root for them to, to do well and just enjoy the game, really. All right, well, we're looking forward to watching it, and um, I, I assume you will be as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael A. Taylor from the Kansas City Royals. We will be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Our great thanks to Michael A. Taylor, who is super friendly and interesting for us here. The one series that we do know, and remember from our vantage point, we're taping this a couple of hours before Giants-Dodgers Game 5, we know that the ALCS will be the Red Sox and the Astros. And all I can keep thinking is the battle of weird ballparks. If you're a right-handed hitter, you're going to be eyeing up left field in both of those ballparks. Our friend um, Dan Zimborski, who does Zips, the Zips projection system at Fangraphs, he ran a projection of this series. And he did it with, you know, what the expected starting lineups are and the expected uh, starting pitch ups, pitching uh, matchups are. You know, obviously we're guessing. We don't know. Here is what his Zips projection system came up with. The the chances of an Astros victory, 50.0004%. And Red Sox, 49.9996%. That is, uh, A, a coin flip. And B, I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised the Astros uh, were not are not higher favorites than that. Exactly. On, on on this on our podcast prep doc, I literally wrote, if McCullers is healthy, Astros feel like favorites. If not, coin flip. Well, it appears that the reports are out there that Lance McCullers is probably not going to pitch. So maybe that's what Zimborski sees. Maybe just Zimborski is just going off this and he's decided. He's like, yo, Myers is right. Coin flip. Um, but uh, I, I w it, with, the with the healthy McCullers, I really would have preferred on the Astros, but this, I mean, this is going to be, this is, I mean, this is like, these lineups are great lineups. Like I was, I was reading, you know, we do these position by position analysis stories on the site. Mike, you've obviously written a number of them over the years. Anthony Kastrovins wrote one for the Red Sox Astros series and I was going through it and it was like, there's some like really fascinating, I know this isn't how baseball is played, but it's pretty, it's, you know, it's not like, oh, they're going head to head like they do in basketball where it's like your, your point guard versus my point guard. But there's something really cool about the fact that, like, at certain positions, both these teams have, like, legit stars. You've got Correa versus Gray and Bogarts, shortstop. Devers versus Bregman at third. You've got Jordan Alvarez, J.D. Martinez at DH. Even, like, Yuli Gurriel and Kyle Schwarber are, like, good and unique in their own ways. So it's like there's a lot of star power in these lineups, and it feels like a lot of runs are going to be scored. What's the story? One of the stories of the Astros this year is that you didn't mention Kyle Tucker, right? And He's really, really good. And he's a star. Um, I'm sorry. I'm so distracted by this. John Mazeliak, quote, we have a philosophical difference of the direction our major league club is going. Spicy. I cannot wait to hear more about that. Um, it does not sound like Lance McCullers is going to pitch much in the series, if at all. At the very least, you can't count on him. We have not seen rosters yet. 
And we had talked a couple of times about how the Astros rotation is sneaky good, uh, which is with names people don't know, right? Because Granky was not himself this year and, you know, was pitching out of the bullpen. And behind McCullers, you had Luis Garcia, Jose Urquidy, uh, Fran Bravaldez, who I like very much. And those are not household names. And now, assuming McCullers at least isn't starting game one, you know, those guys have to start the first couple of games. Do you think do you think Granky gets in there? Does he maybe start a game in Fenway just because that's a tough postseason environment? It's I think he will he will, you know, pitch bulk innings. I think the issue with the Granky now is that he hasn't really been pitching in any sort of length for weeks now. So the question is like, yeah, he might start, but how many innings can he give you? I think I saw some speculation that you might get like an like a Granky Odorizzi like piggyback situation as a result of this. Um, not that Odorizzi has like pitched well this year. He's been pretty, uh, you know, up and down, most more down than up. But like he's at least an experienced major league starter that you could probably, you know, maybe in a, you you figure out a way to piggyback him with with Granky to get you six innings. I don't I don't really know, but I think that's the concern now with Granky is that in the past normally you would have said, oh Zach Granky, he can give us, you know, he can he's someone you could pretty reliably, pretty pretty reliably give you five or six innings. But given that he hasn't really been pitching much recently more in the bullpen, like I don't think you can count on that. The, the matchup I think I'm most interested in seeing is presumably Nathan Avaldi will pitch game one. And he has looked fantastic. Like in the wild card game, he looked incredible. And what I remember from that wild card game, because we were there doing it for ESPN too, is that he was pounding the strikes up, just throwing tons of strikes and kind of daring the Yankees to do something with it. And against that Yankee lineup, you know, where nobody scares you that much outside of Judge and Stanton unless Gallo runs into one, that's okay. I don't know that that works so well against this Astros lineup. This is the best fastball hitting team in baseball. This team strikes out less often than any team in baseball. I sort of feel like if you challenge these guys with fastballs, paging Lance Lynn, that that might not work out so well. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, that's part of the reason why I, 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 I see the the Astros as favorite. Not to give away my prediction, but I'm basically giving my prediction. That's. I mean, I I think that they're they're good. I'm more confident in their ability to score runs and at least stem even with even without McCullers like keep the Red Sox offense in check like yes Ivaldi is good and could pound the strike zone but I think that the Astros can feast on that there's you know this supposedly Chris Sales is, has figured out something with his mechanics and he's going to be great like I'll, I'll believe it when I see it in the game I think that's still a huge a huge question mark and as you know th- hey in 2018 the Red Sox won the World Series because all of a sudden a bunch of uneven relief a bunch of unreliable relievers came through when we're suddenly dominant for like three weeks at the right time. And maybe that's what's happening right now with, you know, with these, these, um, these young, these young relievers that they're, they're getting so much out of, but I'm still a little bit skeptical uh, of their ability to keep it going against the Astros. Yeah. I really want to see uh, Raphael Devers take some swings. I know he hit a big home run the other night, but every swing he takes, every like big swing, it looks like his shoulders about to pop out of the socket. Like we know he's not healthy, he looks like he's in pain. We don't have a ton of information on what's going on there. And remember, this was the Astros team. I can't remember what the number was. They threw him like 58 straight fastballs or whatever it was a couple of months ago. So those are, those are the big matchups for me. I'm excited about this one. The National League team that we do know will be in the NLCS, the Braves, somewhat surprisingly. Um, it's funny because Ronald Acuna Jr. got hurt in July. He's been out for three months. The team has been way better without him. There's your most valuable player award, but in reverse, I guess. Um, the rotation is lined up. They're going to get a ton of rest. Charlie Morton and Max Freed and Ian Anderson are kind of like a really good trio. 
I don't know that any of them have the name value of a Scherzer or a DeGrom or a Cole, but we know Morton's history. Um, Freed and Anderson are younger and kind of like approaching acehood. And I don't know. I, I feel like I should not count this team out, even though I know they will be a huge underdog against either the Giants or the Dodgers. <laughs> yeah, not to mention the fact that uh, they, they might not have Jorge Soler, who's become a really valuable part of their team for much, if not all of the series. He tested positive for COVID-19, and it's unclear how many games he's going to miss or if he's going to miss the whole thing. But it, I think it wouldn't surprise me if he missed all of this, all the entire series. Um, you know, he missed game four against the Brewers, and it was kind of overlooked because I think at that point in the series, people are like, well, the Brewers aren't going to score, so the Braves don't need to score a lot of runs to win, which turned out to be true. But, like, this could be a huge loss because they're going to they're gonna play the Dodgers or the Giants, and they're going to need to score more than, like, three runs a game to win. So Lair hit 269, 358, 524 with the Braves this year. Um, I think the interesting question for the Braves is going to be, like, are they going to go – are they going to be willing to really punt defense if a right-handed pitcher's on the mound in the NLCS and go with Adam Duvall in center with Jock Peterson and Eddie Rosario in the corners? Because they what they were playing was um, – they were playing uh, – I guess they're playing so late. I guess Duvall was in center anyway, right? So I guess that, that's probably what they'll do. We should clarify too, uh, the COVID list is different than the injury list. So this does not mean that Soler is ineligible, you know, as in next the next series, as has been in the case, if you go out on an injury, he can come back and come off the COVID list and it'd be fine. Yeah, you're right. Soler had been playing right field uh, and leading off, you know, sometimes against righties, Peterson would play right field uh, against, let's see, righties against the lefty uh, Eric Lauer. Yeah, they had Devon left, Peterson in right and Guillermo Heredia. In center, they're similar to the Giants in, in some ways that they just don't have a set outfield. You know, like they mix and match as needed. You know, Duvall will be somewhere playing left or right, but is it Peterson? Is it Rosario? Is it Heredia? Until Solaire comes back, uh, you just you don't know. And you're right. Like I think that's kind of a big loss because he was a big part of that lineup. The other thing is, I want you to watch their defense, and I just wrote extensively about this. If you saw in the NLDS against the Brewers. The Brewers had five ground ball hits. Like every time they hit a ball, it seemed like a Braves defender was there and they were because of just the damnedest thing. Between May 19th and May 20th, the Braves just decided they were going to shift. Like that's legitimately true. Over the last two seasons and in April of this year, no team shifted less than the Braves. And then from then on out, they shifted like more than anybody besides for the Dodgers. Just in the middle of the homestand, we're going to do it. We're going to shift. And it's worked out. The defense has been much better. I just can't remember an example like this that's this stark where it's like, okay, we're going to do it now. Uh, figure it out, guys. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the, the run prevention has been really good. I think Freed, Freed has probably benefited maybe as much as anyone because he's not a big strikeout pitcher. But in the second half of the season, he had the lowest ERA in baseball. And I guess, you know, you could, I don't know, it depends how much you want to divvy up the pie of who gets credit for that. Is it the defense? Is it Freed? But I've never been, a, you know, that high on Max Freed, but like at this point, the track record starting to build up, where it's like, oh, maybe he is. Like, oh, is he an ace? Like, I don't, I don't know. He's he's pretty darn good. I'll say that. Um, I don't. I mean, what, yeah. What's an ace, right? Is he your team's best pitcher? Yes. Is the best pitcher on? I don't know. The Diamondbacks an ace? No. You know. So it's like, is he a top? 10 pitcher starter i would say no is he a top 20 to 25 yeah i think i think so um and that's pretty good and then obviously you know you look at that infield and freeman albies swanson and riley 
started pretty much every day. Like, how much do we just talk about mixing and matching? Who's going to start? We don't know. There is no question here. It will be those guys. And is there a team that they match up better against Dodgers or Giants? Not, I guess those teams are both excellent. And maybe they're rooting for the Dodgers so they can start at home. But I'm not sure it matters all that much. No. Yeah, I guess it's... No, they're... Um... I mean, I, I feel bad saying this. I'd still think you'd rather face the Giants, but um, they're going to be the underdogs in either one. But with the pitchers lined up, I mean, you mentioned the track record of Morton and Anderson. I mean, like Ian Anderson at this point, his his postseason like ERA is like 0.64. Like last year he pitched the postseason was ridiculous. He threw another like five or six shutout innings this week. Um, he's someone that you certainly, despite still technically being a rookie, he now has like a significant track record in the postseason, and you feel totally comfortable with him on the mound. The fact they have their starters lined up and that like legit, you know, infield as one of the best, like true, just like infields in the game, they certainly have a chance. Like, you know, it's, you know, you might see like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be the Dodgers or the Giants who cruise to the World Series. Every team has a chance. I'd give them, you know, I still will pick them as the underdog, but I, I would I will not be surprised to see them in the World Series. Yeah, I want to give them a little bit of credit too. We I think we had talked about the fact that neither one of us really trusted their bullpen very much, and the bullpen was really good against Milwaukee. And maybe part of that is the Brewers' offense was weak, but you know Luke Jackson and Tyler Matzik, Will Smith, they all came out and they looked really good. So you know their opponent, from our point of view, will be decided in the next couple hours. And I know that I am just personally so happy that the other three series ended in time so that all of the baseball world is just focused on game five Dodgers Giants that is the only way that this could end and I'm so with, Cor- with, with Corey Knable on the mound with Corey Knable on the mound <laughs> definitely definitely the way I projected it that'll do it for this week's podcast our thanks again to our guest Michael A. Taylor don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions leave us a rating and a review thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast see you next week